Hi, I'm Marilee Albert, the founder of One Village Green, a mental health nonprofit. And you are listening to Wake Up. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last several years, you've seen something somewhere about the growing mental health crisis in our country, especially amongst our youth. Something is wrong. But what is causing this crisis? We will examine the problem and find solutions to improve our collective mental health. So let's put our heads together and let's find a way to a better future. Chip, welcome to our podcast. I really, really appreciate your coming on. You know, this is a mental health podcast. I've been talking to a lot of mental health professionals. I did speak to our fellow author about her memoir where she, you know, she had a really quite a wild story, Hannah Swart, right. uh, her memoir strip. But you're our first author who's come on. And, I, you know, and I want to expand. I have such a powerful interest in crime, as I know you do. And I want to talk to you a little bit. Well, we'll talk some general stuff, but I want to get into your book. And, you know, this is me trying to expand the scope of the podcast because I find that crime and mental health are so intrinsically connected. A lot of criminals, everybody just assumes like a criminal that they're psychopathic. And many of them are. Many of them are. Some criminals are obviously schizophrenic and, you know, they see, you know, the devil and it's really not the devil, but it's a tragedy of their mind tricking them. So then they kill someone completely off their head in schizophrenia. And and then there's, you know, a much grayer area and, you know, a lot of crime that falls into this gray area. And in your book, so first thing I want to do is introduce you to the audience. You tell everyone your book. And of course, you've written other books. And there's some interesting stuff in, you know, in another book you've written. So why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Audience, how you doing? Uh, my name is Chip. I don't know you well, audience, but I'm hoping you'll get For a three little, people that listen. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll get a little insight into the mind of an author who's very interested in what makes us tick. Yes, uh, Mara Lee and I are both novelists. I've come from the journalism background and have written nonfiction books as well. And I the reason I think Marilyn is having me on is to talk about a true crime book that I recently updated and released under the name The Darkest Glare, a true story of real estate murder and greed in Los Angeles in 1979, Los Angeles. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. Why don't you tell uh, about the story and uh, the book and stuff? Sure. The story is really about a three-man power struggle, a very promising uh, Los Angeles-based space design and construction company composed of really three principles a nerdy, brainy guy who's 27 years old, a art center graduate who really had uh, almost a genius level ability to space design. Another principal was a, a guy named Richard who was bipolar and we'll talk about. He was about 12 years older than Jerry, the brainy nerd, and a very debonair um, a salesman, can win over any room. You've heard the expression, you know, this guy could uh, sell ice cubes at the Eskimos. He's like that, but his magnetism only slightly covered up a mentally ill person who wasn't so much a perpetrator of violence as a indisputable receptacle to receive violence. It's not about violence you don't recover from. The third guy in our story is kind of the classic late 20th century angry white male in America, specifically L.A., who had a lot of racial grievance a lot of feeling the system was doing him wrong, and I'm sure had some 
psychopathic tendencies himself. But he only pretended to be the victim of white-collar crime. He was really the producer of bloody crime. So it was this, what started off as a very positive uh, money-making venture where you had you know, one guy you could sell, one guy you could design, and another guy you could construct. It seemed like they had the world eating out of their hand, and it ended in the most chaotic, scary, violent uh, way you can imagine outside of a mass shooting. Yeah, and um, one of them ended up dead. Yes. And so we're getting to the victim of our yeah. story. What's his name, Richard? Yes, um, the, the victim of the story is, is both a cause of the collapse of this company and the ultimate victim of it. And without giving it away as a spoiler alert, his whole life. So Richard, unlike Howard, the hard-boiled and leathery-faced contractor, or Jerry, who kind of looked a little bit like Arnold Horshack from Welcome Back Cotter, Richard uh, was born with a spoon in his mouth from a Beverly Hills family. He was like a son of Beverly Hills. His father always thought he was a big wuss and complained about his lack of sort of virility and manliness and athleticism. Uh, but R Richard came from the more creative side. But he, I believe because of undiagnosed bipolar, back in the day, they did call it manic depressive. His family always covered up for his mistakes. I believe when he would be in a bipolar mania, where it was all about charisma and all about, not euphoria so much, but sort of this feeling of invincibility and the right to tell lies and cheat and betray and other things. And it's all going to be okay because there'll always be people cleaning up my mess. This was Richard and it really did him no favors because it gave him the sense that he was always inoculated from the consequences of sometimes rather atrocious behavior. And he got away with it and got away with it partly because he was a womanizer, very good looking, and he left a trail of very brokenhearted women swept up in his mania times when he projected this image of success and in the most debonair, cool way, he almost looked like Amityville Horror, you know, the original, who uh, Barbara Streisand's husband, James Brolin. He looked like James Brolin, but he lied like Jack Nicholson in some really bad role. And throughout his life, you know, he could get away with dumping women, um, walking away from business obligations, not showing up at meetings where he's supposed to, you know, is a very key person. And I believe a lot of at the root of it was bipolar. He would disappear for weeks, sometimes months, and people thought he was suicidal. So he was crashing down into the trough of his emotional wavelength. And he might have been getting some minor amount of therapy. Maybe I know that they used to give people with bipolar lithium. That was sort of the all-purpose drug. But what's interesting to me is, you know, today you we, we read about the homeless guy who is bipolar or the mass killer who's bipolar. What you don't hear about because it's not in the headlines is they are, if you actually look it up, they are more likely to be the victims, not the perpetrators. It doesn't excuse anybody violence, even mental illness, but it is, it does put in perspective, you know, they, if you know somebody has got a mental illness, they are more of a sitting duck because they're more likely to be hearing voices in their heads or doubting themselves or putting themselves in danger, maybe somewhat self, you know, self harming and, and suicidally. So I felt very sorry for Richard, even though he did some really dastardly, rotten things to people. He was hurting. He was lost. 
and people back in the late 70s, 80s with mental illness, he, he may have had some conception of his own problems. And I think he did. But the easiest thing to do was to grab a bag of weed, get some, no, coke, you know, drink, um, womanize, you know, that that was the way to numb the pain of a condition science lacked answers to, to address. Chip, was he diagnosed? Did he go to a doctor or it was just, you're just saying he didn't, he knew there was something kind of wrong with him. I mean, did he get help? That's a good question. You know, I mean. It's not I, in your book. I mean, you don't know. This is, yeah. This is from 1979. I believe the consensus was that he had, he was bipolar or back in the day, manic depressive. And I believe his family or, uh, you know, ex-wives even said that, you know, looking back on it now, it's so very clear. There was once a part of time, you know, in America when suicide, cancer, those were taboo subjects. And I think the idea of mental illness, even two generations back, was taboo because it somehow was a character flaw, you know, that you were supposed to hide from polite society. Right. So he was an untreated bipolar. He was untreated by the medical profession, by and large, before he was killed. And I hope people will buy the book to see how it plays out, not because it's going to make me rich, but because it is a sad story of somebody who could have been saved. In fact, Richard had plenty of warning. The clock was ticking on him with a very scary set of individuals determined to assassinate him, assassinate, not just kill, assassinate. And he wouldn't get out of town. He wouldn't do the logical steps. I believe because his brain chemistry was a toxic swamp at that point. And that explains it. And the guy had kids. You know, when you have kids, to me, that changes everything. And so he had a duty to persevere and he didn't do it. And I'm sure his mindset was that way. And it's, you know what? It's when you face a daunting, terrible quagmire, sometimes it's just better just to get numb. And that's what he did, get numb a lot. Yeah, because we see a lot of, in terms of mental illness, we see it as a lot of like, oh, someone who's mentally ill is going to cause a crime. But we're not looking at it from this vantage point, which is a lot of mentally ill people put themselves in harm's way. Yes. They behave in very risky, inappropriate, illegal ways. As a reporter, even in the 90s, I heard around the newspaper, you know, I was not a police reporter, far from it. I was a political investigative reporter, but they did call it suicide by cop. Yeah, I mean, suicidal is just one designation. What is behind the suicidal elements? Schizophrenia, psychopath, bipolar. It is this up and down thing. And Richard, from my book, would be up and down. One minute, he could do no wrong. And he seemed like the most, he was a pretty man, pretty person of LA. He had the everything going for him. You could want intelligence, good looks, that equality. And then, you know, he could be a jerk. He could be uh, self-exiling. He, you know, could be in a rush to a meeting and what honk in a very aggressive manner at some old lady in a crosswalk because he'd screwed up and was late. And now she was just trying to hobble, you know what, to the curb and she got his wrath. So, you know, there's a lot of, I think when people are bipolar, there is a giant ripple effect of those around them. It's almost like an addict. You know, uh, whereas there's the slow, terrible tragedy unfolding one episode at a time. And it seems inexorable. Yeah. And it is very connected to addiction because they're addicted to the high that their brain naturally creates during a mania. What? So, you know, you're writing about well, these characters and there's some other stuff in your other book that I read, Arroyo, which right. is a fascinating novel of Pasadena. 
what is your interest in mental health? Like what, or do you think it's just like human nature and, you know, we're all writers are interested in human nature um, or is there something more like, were there members in your family or? Yes, yes. And yes. And the darkest glare, my true crime book, you know, it took me a while to understand how big a role Richard's bipolar played in this chain of events that, would last a generation, partly because society became more conversant and open talking about mental illness. So um, when I wrote later wrote my first novel, Arroyo, you know, I mean, I have two daughters in their 20s and their generation is fraught with anxiety, depression. You know, we don't know uh, similar ailments and we don't know if it's in the water. We don't know if it's caused by social media. We damn well better start knowing. But I, I wanted to put that in my book. And so I created a female character and gave her uh, anxiety. And this was the um, love interest of the main character. And I made it so she had a scarring incident as a child. And she had a reluctance to talk during the day because that's when the scarring incident occurred. I also uh, had the, f the father of my protagonist hear start hearing voices. And that led to his demise later. I mean, as we're learning, people have had PTSD since the beginning of time. Um, there was, sorry to say, gays in Jesus' time and slaves. All these things have been a product of humanity <laughs> since there's been humans. Uh, I don't know if it's in the same proportion today. I doubt it. But we've been living with this and we came to the game late. So that's why I tried to reflect, you know, what I'm seeing in my world, but projected back on the day when people didn't talk about it. And um, when young women, especially in the Victorian age, would have anxiety or depression, maybe even postpartum syndrome, you know what they called it? Hysteria. Hysteria. She's hysterical. I mean, they're, they're, it's patriarchal. It's incorrect. And, you know, it, it's it wasn't up. just back then. I mean, they, that kind of continued through the 60s, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the, and and that's the, about the worst thing you can say to somebody who actually is hysterical. By the way, you're being hysterical. I've been called hysterical before a calculus test. And I was hysterical. But that, that's another matter. Um, but you're right. It tends to be directed to women. Yeah. And then you know, what's also an interesting, you know, feature of the Victorian age is uh, men wanted their women looking very pretty uh, with the hourglass shape with corsets and all that. And women were so uh, bound and what's the word like kind of st straight jacketed that they uh, they had to create fainting couches. Can you believe that? Instead of maybe addressing the dress. They, they build furniture so a man can go, look at my perfect wife. Of course, she you know can't breathe. So I'm working on a new novel now, and I don't know how much it's going to factor in, but my the inspiring main character had bipolar. He was a genius, like goodwill hunting, will-level genius. I mean, I went to a very tough prep school. This guy could have done a shot of JD, smoked a joint, run a lap, whatever, and still got a 99% on his calculus, honors calculus test. But mental illness really exploded out of him in his early 20s with bipolar. He was a computer programmer very early on to the idea of the cloud. And his widow told me he would be working for days straight, no sleep, like 36 hours, almost like uh, a computer programmer bender. Coding, coding, coding. He wouldn't give up. Maybe he'll drink some coffee. Maybe he'll go to the bathroom, but he can't stop. He can't turn his brain off. 
He's enjoying it. It seems like he's making a breakthrough, but really you're seeing somebody just going up like a roller coaster on the inevitable crash and crash he would. And when he crashed, when people with bipolar go down, it yanks a lot of other folks with them. Well, what happened? Did they get him help? He had a lot of things going on, some past addiction issues, bipolar, and those are very dangerous chemicals. You know, there's something called a binary chemical weapon where you take two otherwise inert chemicals, but when you combine them, they become extremely lethal. That's kind of like what it is with many people with bipolar and narcotics. It just makes the good times more extreme and the bad times more desperate. That's what did happen to my friend. And it's tough to know how to deal with somebody who is dancing on the ceiling one day and the next day, you know, they're going to rip your head off because you didn't read their minds. So he didn't get help, you're saying? He got some help uh, and medications because it was also largely known. But then when he contracted a very deadly form of cancer called multiple myeloma, went to the hospital, you know, in massive pain, they want to prescribe you opiates. Well, if you're in a bipolar crisis, you're very sensitive to your sobriety and you had a problem with opiates. Now you're being told you need an opiate. It's kind of like which crisis gets front billing because it's going to trigger another crisis. So I don't know how much that will be in the book. I'm just basing it on him, but he was in a devil's conundrum. Yeah. I think cancer gets first billing in that, probably. You, you think so. But seeing this image of my friend who was really, really good on the computer, one interesting story is he was on, I think, a bipolar high. He was on narcotics, making him even higher. And he got arrested. And while he was in jail, is not a nonviolent, as a nonviolent person. But, you know, more like destruction of property. Uh, the police department needed to have their security system updated. So they get, they brought a computer and keyboard into his cell and he reprogrammed the police station security system, you know, while being held till he could face a judge. So he probably was now down off his bipolar high. Maybe he got his medication. I don't know. But we just can't stick our heads in the sand, you know. In 1979, maybe you could, but 2023, no way. And, yeah, in uh, 1979, they were still like putting people in those state hospitals and they were lobotomizing people. You know, there were some aggressive treatments of mental health, but it wasn't the kind. That yeah. And I don't even know, because neither of us are PhDs and MDs, I don't even know how serious they considered manic depression back in the day. I don't know what was up there with schizophrenia or psychosis. I mean, Jimmy Hendrix wrote a song called, you know, about it. So there is no excuse today. And um, no. if you want a really good look at where culture is, just watch a commercial. TV commercials, the people in the commercials are versions of the same people that companies want to sell you drugs. There are tons of commercials now for bipolar. And that's actually a positive thing. I'm very skeptical of big pharma, but it tells you there's enough people with that diagnosis that it's worth the money for that pharmaceutical company to put something on the air, right? Yeah, normalizing it is helpful. I think making it less devilish and secretive and yes. getting people the help they need without making them feel like they're something really terribly wrong, you know. Normalizing yeah. mental health care is a good thing, like you said. Yes, what? we need to get to the point where there isn't an, this five foot cement firewall between physical health and mental health, and that is breaking down, you know. But tell that to the, somebody who lost a brother, who lost a son, who lost, you know, a wife to mental illness. And we, you know, you and I know people 
you know, that have lost significant others to it. So it's mind boggling to see how much of it's around in society today, especially the younger generation and a thousand percent partially fueled by social media, you know, and somebody, I just watched something say, you know, back in our day, the bullies kicked the crap out of you and you went home, you know, and then they would often be too stupid to stay in the same school. They just go off to their own place, see them again. Well, with social media, bullying, intimidation, peer pressure, it's 24-7. Now it's getting 100 likes. No wonder kids have so much horrible self-doubt inside them. Yeah, it's terrible. The social media has got to be connected. I mean, that's around yes. the time that it came up in the world is when the suicide and the mental health and kids became so much more extreme. Yes. And you know, like on uh, Snapchat, you can see the avatars of like what your friends are all doing, which I think is really sick. Can mm -hmm. you imagine in high school, like if I was home all the time studying, like if I knew everybody was doing stuff, I would have been really much more depressed. Uh, uh, a thousand percent. Uh, yeah, and then uh, you see people's lives look so pretty on social media. We all know a lot of that's curated. No. I just flew back from seeing my daughter in Washington, D.C., and I watched a movie I'd wanted to see called Dark Waters. You know, I'm very interested in, in the environment. Uh, I, as a reporter, I wrote about Aaron Brockovich before people knew about it. And Dark Waters is about DuPont, the chemical company, you know, the people that came up with the idea of better living through chemistry, right, which got co-opted in the 60s. They were dumping something called a forever chemical, PFOACA into the soil, into the rivers, and um, they discovered this poisoning downstream of their operations when almost 200 cattle die. It's kind of like social media. You know, they put stuff in the water and uh, we drink it. And, you know, for some child that's got bipolar or mental illness, propensity to anxiety, you just can't get it out of their diet. And maybe some of it's been created out of nothing by social media, or maybe that was always there. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's scary. I mean, in my story, when a man who should have every reason to get help or get out of danger does neither repeatedly, repeatedly, you could have had a sign the size of an old Kentucky fried chicken advertisement blinking in his, you know, into his bedroom saying, leave town, danger, danger. And he would have just, just closed the blinds. That's what he did. You know, I do believe his mental illness was actively working against his own recuperation. I have a friend who does have bipolar, grew up with him, one of my best friends. And what that is one of the most diabolical elements, I think, of bipolar. Because, you know, you can get some medications and it can level you out, right? But it's leveling you out only 10 feet above the ground where you used to live 100 feet above the ground. But it almost actively campaigns against you getting to the bottom of what's going on, I feel like. So it's really cruel. It's not enough to get treated for bipolar, but they have to get behind some of the other conditions in your life that may be susceptible to having it a bad case of it. Yeah. And to manage it, you need probably you need the therapy along with medication. Yes. But, well, you know, with crime, you know, getting back to your story and crime in general, we do focus mostly on the criminals and their mental health. We're yeah. not often looking at victims because, you know, people see it as victim shaming. I yeah. see it as just illumination. So if somebody is, for example, bipolar, like the character in your book, they're more likely to be a victim of a crime. So yes. we need to care for mental health for people to not put themselves into dangerous situations, you know? Um, bipolar has a very high death rate. I don't yeah. know if you knew this. It has a high suicide rate of like 30%. Wow. Which is 
I didn't know that. Yeah, it has a very high suicide rate. I know I know the statistics out there that show, you know, uh people with bipolar are far more likely to be the victim of crime than the you know, Oh, is there a statistic like that? I'm sure there is. I've looked it up. I sh- you know, I don't have something handy, but yes. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It makes I a lot also of sense. Think, you know, in Los Angeles, which has got a rampant homeless problem. I mean, we have more homeless in our area than the populations of some of the small suburban towns. And think about it. If you've been on the street for 20 years, maybe you started off with some mental illness. Well, what do you think 20 years of street living has done to the voices in your head, to yeah. your inability to distinguish reality from this reality? You yeah. Know? And you're not getting mental health. No. Care. But- in my book, Richard, you know, came from a wealthy family that just thought he could do no wrong. And they apologized too much. They cleaned up for him too much. They, um, who did? Condone, his family condoned his actions too much. But at the heart of it, and I'm sure bipolar mania contributed to that, and then he'd get depressed. Even if they made him own up to his responsibilities, underlying it still was a problem that psychiatry did not fully understand, you know? No, in fact, back then, there's another problem with bipolar, which is when it's really, really bad, Yeah, it mimics schizophrenia. Yeah. Because at, at the peak of a lot of manias is psychosis. Mm-hmm. So they got to catch bipolar before that, because a lot of times back then they would catch bipolar at psychosis and people would think it was schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And then they may be treated for schizophrenia, which is terrible because those medications are really rough. You got to get the right medications with people. And it's a very dangerous disease which is basically what your book eliminates. And just think about all the, you know, just think all the stories you've read of people, you know, murdered, you know, then they're uh, or hurt, you know, and they're not getting, you know, the news stories aren't really getting into, well, the fact he was a sitting duck. That's what I I do feel like people with mental illness can be sitting ducks. And in this case he was, and I don't know if anything, uh, unless he was in 2023, I don't know if there's anything to stop. It was like a terrible train wreck, you know, and you saw it a mile in advance and you can't slam the brakes. You can't change the tracks. And, you know, it this, it, this drove him into not getting out of Dodge when killers were coming after him. And think about all the drugs around Los Angeles, how easy it was to go comfortably numb, right? Well, and just every step of the way that he was, you know, the money, the mishandling of finances, and that's a very manic thing because there's no ability to control yourself. And then the, the like you say, then the the ball just goes rolling down the hill and it just- Yeah, I think actually in both, the case of Richard from Darkest Glare and my friend, uh, I'm calling him my book, Denny. I think uh, the bipolar highs produced elements of, of delusions of grandeur. Like I can do anything. I can evade anyone. I can um, develop any computer code if I just stay up for that third night. And uh, yeah, you know, my, for my friend, Denny, made up name, you know, I, I feel like it was almost like an engine that he just kept going at a hundred miles an hour for 36 hours straight. And you're going to burn out your spark plugs. You're going to burn through your oil. You're going to do damage to other parts of the car. That that's what happened. He kind of put his mind into the nuclear mode and there was no cooling rods. Yeah. And, and as you know, so we have to wrap up chip, but as you know, this conversation is unending. It's un, it's unlimited. There's just yeah. such a huge problem societally 
I believe a lot of our problems are best eliminated through the arts, through writing. I have gotten more out of reading about mental health issues through novels. Like just thinking of my, one of my all-time favorite novels, Madame Bovary, (laughs) just reading about people's lives helps us all understand better our lives. And, you know, the kids need the most help. That's where, you know, that's what I'm really trying to get to with this podcast is trying to just get to the point of finding kids the help they need and trying to turn the ship around where we're having this crisis. And, you know, there's no answer, but we're just asking the questions. And I I believe art is a big place to ask those questions. I think both of your books, the two novels, well, The Darkest Player is true crime. It's not a novel. It's nonfiction. You've written a lot of nonfiction books. Arroyo is your first novel. And and there's interesting mental health stuff in that book as well. Check out my website. ChipJacobs.com. Follow Marilee because she is a mental health warrior we could talk for hours but we'll do it another time we'll do it for other times yeah no Thanks thank you again. Much. but follow you know follow Lee's advice her site this podcast and we will all be better for it thank you chip